Good morning. And happy Mother's Day to our mothers here. I, uh, when I initially got this um, assignment and this date, I thought about doing something um, on a Mother's Day message. But having a mother who has gone to be with the Lord and watching all the many mothers, including my own wife and the sacrifices that she gave, I thought I, A, couldn't get through it, and B, couldn't give it justice. So we're going to continue on in the series that we're, we've been working on to prepare for life action. A couple weeks ago, my good friend and brother, Ramon, preached on forgiveness and what it means to come for revival, having left things that are unsaid and unspoken and things that are unresolved. And he was preaching directly to me. I know the rest of you all were in the room, but he was preaching. It felt like he was directly to me. Last week, Pastor Chad spoke on being in the presence of God, coming to the mountain, the summit, as this life action is actually called. Many times in the Bible, it talks about coming to a summit and being with the summit, specifically one in Exodus, where the nation of Israel comes and gives their covenant to the Lord and devouts themselves to God, and then they quickly fall off. Because as we come together for life action in May, one thing that will happen is actually true June will eventually come. And when June comes, what happens then? How do we maintain that? How do we keep that? How do we focus ourselves toward that mission that we're going to have once we come off the mountain? That's important. So, in keeping with that, I want to talk about what it means to follow Jesus and what it means to be the church. So if you could, could you turn with me to Matthew 5, And I'm going to be reading out of 1, verse 1 through 16. Now, this will be familiar to many of you, but I hope that I can shed a different kind of light on it in light of the first century uh, Jewish audience that Jesus would have been speaking to, not only Jew, but Gentile audience that Jesus was speaking to. So let me read over you the passage and we'll pray, and then we'll move on from there. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under the foot of men. For you, you are the light of the world. The city on the hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Will you pray with me? 
Father, as we prepare our hearts for revival, as we draw our own circle to step into it and pray that you will start a revival in me, God, I just ask that you will give us the presence and sustain us in what comes next, Lord. Let us come seek you on the summit, but God, let us understand what it is, the mission that you have called us to, and what it is to be a church and the task at hand. I just ask that you would give me the words to say as we look over these well-known and very popular and just influential passages, and I just ask that you would allow Jesus' words to resonate in, in this sermon as we talk about how he, what he did to this first century and what he does in every other lives of all those who come to you. I thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So, my spiritual upbringing, I was discipled and basically raised by a Messianic Jew. That title is somebody who is a Jewish believer who is believed that Jesus is the Messiah. So in my early 20s, I had the benefit of sitting under a rabbi-turned-Christian. And so that is the experience that I have. He was the most influential person in my spiritual walk. And one of the benefits, aside from they have great food. Man, you go to a Jewish community and you eat, they have great food. But aside from having that benefit, they also tell the greatest stories. And one of the stories that he would frequently tell is a fictitious one, but he was going to resonate a point, and it speaks well into this one. And the story that he would tell, and he told it frequently to different students, and I heard it, and every time I, just, I, I would eat it up and I would love it, he would talk about a first century rabbi who was walking to the synagogue to give his specific talk and specific teaching to his students. And he talked about a rabbi who was walking with his head down, not confident on what he was about to teach. He was kind of milling it over in his mind. Picture me sitting next to me every Sunday morning when I'm going to preach, driving to church. That's about how that goes. Like, just focused on the task at hand, pulling into the church driving, or the parking lot going, how did I get here? Like, did I run any stop signs, anything like that? So he talks about this rabbi, head down, focused, and he comes to a fork in the road. The fork in the road, the synagogue goes to the left, to the right is unknown. He accidentally makes the wrong turn. He goes to the right. And as he's walking down the right side of it, he comes to a a Roman outpost. He has no idea how he gets there, but it's manned by a centurion who's standing up on the pillar. And he leans down and he yells at him. He says, hey, who are you and what is your purpose here? Well, startled, he doesn't know what to say. He's unsure how he got there and why he's looking at a Roman centurion and not his own synagogue and his students. So he says nothing. He's baffled by this. So the Roman, who's trying to do his job, is super upset by this moment. He looks at him even with more disdain and more authority. He says, Jew, who are you and what is your purpose here? Well, after he gains his bearings, he looks back at the Roman centurion and he he says to him, he goes, how much does the Roman government pay you to shout things like this at me? And the Roman centurion proudly says, they pay me two denarii a day to shout such things at you. And the rabbi says, I will double your wages if you come to my house and every morning you shout that same thing to me as I wake up. Who are you and what is your purpose here? So as we go through this, as we talk about this text, that's what I want to remain in your mind. Who are you and what is your purpose here? Because there's plenty of people who are going to try to fill that void, right? They're going to try to tell you who you are and what's your purpose here. If you go to any bookstore, whether it be religious, whether it be secular, it doesn't matter. You're going to get a ray of books, good or not, that will try to tell you who you are and what your purpose is here. 
And they'll do this for a small book fee, right? They're trying to sell their books. They have these ideas. They're trying to tell you exactly who you are and what's your purpose here. Well, if you came here this morning not understanding what we were talking about and you didn't know what I was going to say and you're thinking to yourself, oh great, the sunburnt guy up front is going to tell you who you are and what your purpose is, I've got some bad news. I'm not going to do that. But we're going to walk through the text of somebody who is going to tell you who you are and what your purpose is here. So if you would give me the moment, a few minutes, to kind of give you some context, because we're jumping into a new book that we haven't looked at. But this book and these passages are written by the Gospel Matthew. To understand what Matthew is trying to tell you throughout the context of this, he is telling you that the kingdom is bigger than you think it is. Everything about Matthew's Gospel says everyone's welcome here. True by the fact that he is a tax collector working for the Romans. He is hated at the time that Jesus calls him. He is not well-liked in his community. So he tells you that from the front. He doesn't hide his backstory either. He says, this is who I was when Jesus called me. The second thing that tells you that everybody's included, and it doesn't matter where you come from, is the fact that he does a genealogy in the front of of the text. How many of you skip through the genealogy in Matthew? I don't need to show hands. I understand genealogy for us is not great. But if you go through and you work through that genealogy in Matthew, you'll see a couple of interesting things. One, it has women in it. That is not common for a first century Jewish genealogy. Jesus' genealogy has women in it. Here's the second thing about that. They are women of questionable character. He does not hide the fact that Rahab, who we know kind of her backstory questionable. He doesn't hide the fact that she is part of Jesus's life story. He does not hide the fact that Ruth, who is a Moabite, a non-Jew, is part of that story. And he does not hide the fact that Mary, who is Jesus's birth story, is questionable, is part of that story. He hides none of that. He is telling you boldly that this son of God, this man, is here to bring everybody he can into this kingdom. He is not taking sides here. And then we go into this section. So if you permit me a second to talk about the verse that's directly been from the Beatitudes, it says this, Matthew 4.25, large crowds followed him from the Galilee and the Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Here is a map of the topographical geographical sections of Israel. Now, as you see, he talks about people from the Galilee. Let's review who they are. Geographically, they are in the north of Israel. They are where Jesus has set up his main ministry. So when you talk about people from the Galilee, you're talking about his disciples. You're talking about people who has heard him in synagogue, who has followed him, and has probably known him from birth. The majority of that crowd is going to be beneficial to him, though some skeptical. He will have Pharisees within that group, Pharisees who are trying to trap him, but he will have majority support out of Galilee. And they've come to hear him. Now, geographically, where they would sit when he's teaching this, when he's proclaiming this, is they sit in the front row. They're here early. Not just to this Sermon of the Mount. They're here early because they've been following him for a while. His 12 disciples are here, about where Abe is. His 12, his 12 disciples are, have got the front row seat to him. Now, the second group it talks about is people from Judea and Jerusalem. 
Here's the thing. People from Judea and Jerusalem do not like him. They are the priestly elite. They've heard the stories. They've seen all the, ta- they've seen all the things that he's done. And guess what? They're coming to trap him. They will be the group that eventually takes his life. They do not care for him. Now, when I talk about people that are east of the Jordan, that's a mixed group of people that are, that are Jews living in the diaspora, and those are Gentiles. It's a mixed group. So you're about 50-50. And then you get a region that is kind of passed over if you read that very quickly. It's called the region of the Decapolis. The best way I can describe the region of the Decapolis for a modern context is I like to think about the movie The Lion King. going over. So many of you have seen the movie The Lion King, right? Mufasa has taken his son Simba. They've gone out to the front of the rock and Simba or Mufasa says to Simba, he says, everything the light touches is yours. It's our kingdom, right? And then Simba, being the young inquisitive child, says, well, what about the shadowy black area? And Mufasa says, that's the outlands. We don't go there. To a first century Jew, the Decapolis is the outlands. They don't go there. They don't associate with people from the Decapolis. That is Gentile pagan nation. That is an area they don't touch. But they have all gathered for one reason, and that is to hear this itinerant rabbi from Galilee. He's collected all of these groups of people that have come to listen to him. So if you think in this room, geographically speaking, you got the disciples here. You may have the people from Jerusalem over here, but you got the people in the Decapolis way in the back. They're the people that are on the outside looking in. They do not look like his disciples. So think about this. The disciples are Jews. They've checked all the boxes. They've shown up every day. They've walked with him. And they're looking around and they're going, these people do not act like us. They do not look like us. They do not follow our laws. How do you think these disciples feel? They're a bit nervous. This group is not what they're thinking. In a modern context, this is what you're looking at. People coming to see Jesus from a modern context look like this. Your everyday Christians, people who sit in the church pews, representatives from the Vatican, religious leaders, members of the LBGTQ community, people who are from the Decapolis, Religious authors and influential pastors, Republicans and Democrats gathered in one section to hear Jesus. How do you think that goes? Jesus looks out and he sees all of this and he responds with the Beatitudes. His own group, his own havara, his own group is made up of fishermen, tax collectors, and a zealot. Jesus is great at collecting different. That's what he does. He collects different. And then, when he gets the opportunity to speak to this group, he leads them with the Beatitudes. Blessed be, or for a literal translation, God has favor on. Now, we've heard this a lot. If you've grown up in church, you have seen the Beatitudes And it almost gets mistranslated or misrepresented. So we will look at the Beatitudes and we will think, that's what we're to aspire to. That's what we're trying to obtain. 
God will have favor on us if we're all these things. But that's a misreading of the text. Because if you read these, and I'll go through each one of them for you, to have any of these things happen, you have had to have lost something. Check the first one. Blessed, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If you are poor in spirit, it's because you lack spirit. Now, we're celebrating Mother's Day today. But there's some of you mothers who walked in the room that are poor in spirit. You're chasing children. It's, just, it's crazy. It's chaotic. I watch my wife do it a lot. But there's also mothers who have struggled this year. Maybe mothers whose children have wandered. Maybe we've lost a child. There's a lot of mothers who are struggling that are poor in spirit. There are many of us who walked in here that are poor in spirit. To be poor in spirit means I have to have lost something. I don't ascribe to this. I'm not aspiring to this. This is the state of the condition that I'm in. And Jesus says, God has favor on you. If you walked in here poor in spirit, God has favor on you. The next one, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. To have mourned, you had to have lost something or someone. That's not something we're gathering to. That's something that's happened to us. A situation has begotten on us that we did not like and that we do not want. Maybe you're mourning the loss of a loved one. Maybe you're mourning the loss of a situation. Maybe you're just mourning missed expectations. But to have had mourning, you've had to have lost something. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. A gentle, meek spirit is not something that's celebrated in most cultures. Because to be gentle means that something else has had to have been hard to coincide with it. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. That's the one we love, right? We're hungering and thirsting for righteousness. To hunger and thirst for something means I don't have it. I'm looking for it. I'm trying to claim it, but I don't have it. Because we can't obtain righteousness on our own. That's why we hunger and we thirst for it. It's brought by the man who's speaking these words. We're hungering, we're thirsting for it, but we don't have it. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. If I have to give mercy for something, guess what happened to me? Somebody hurt me. Somebody hurt me if I have to give mercy. I have to show forgiveness. Somebody hurt me. I don't show up merciful for no reason. Something had to have happened to me. Something had to happen for you. God has favor on you. It's exactly what he's saying. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. That's on every police officer's like mug. If you go into the police department, I guarantee you that's on there somewhere. I've been in a lot of police departments. It's all, it's advertised all over. Blessed are the peacemakers. That's great, right? Peacemakers. Have any of you ever tried to be a peacemaker? Both parties end up hating you (laughs) or disliking you. Trust me. I showed up in people's chaos and calamity for 20 years, and I often walked away with both parties going, yeah, we don't really care for him much. (laughs) If you try to be a peacemaker, you're going to upset both parties typically. Try being a mediator. It's hard. Nobody likes a peacemaker. And then he says, blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, 
for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And I want you to pay attention to the next thing. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you. He says persecution twice. He says it twice there. Is he trying to belabor the point? Is he stuttering? Why does he say persecute twice there? Because it's a subtle shift in language. He has a different audience. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those, blessed are the. He's reaching out and all of a sudden, he looks down at his main flock and he says, Blessed are you. He's talking to his disciples. He's talking to his collection. He's talking to those who have committed their lives to following him. And then he goes into, you are the salt of the earth. You are a city on a hill. You are a light to the world. He's made a shift. He's looking down at his disciples and he says, guess what, guys? Pick up your heads and look around. Because even though this group doesn't look like us, and you don't feel like they belong, this is now your flock. I called you to be fishers of men. This is your fishing spot. Kingdom from Jesus looks like this. And that's what he's telling him. And he does, and he uses image to do that. When he says you are the salt of the earth, he's talking about specifically, he's using a sense. He says taste. What they used salt for back in that day was to preserve food. They didn't have refrigerators like we do. So he says, you are the salt of the earth. What good are you if you do not preserve what I'm doing here? He says, you are a city on a hill. We kind of get the meaning behind that. But what that meant, and if you looked at the old Jerusalem and how it is now, in war times, if they destroyed a city, guess what they did? They built the new one right on top of that city that was destroyed. Because all the resources were there. All the water, all that stuff. So he's saying to them, we're building this city on a hill. And in the first century, they would have had different social classes too. If you were wealthy, or if you were elite, you could live inside the city walls. You were protected. You had a home. That was important to you. If you were in the middle class, you would live in what was called casemate housing. You lived inside the city walls. Literally, like apartment complexes inside the city gates. The story of Rahab's a good example of her living inside the wall. Casemate housing. You could afford your house, you're living okay, you're semi-protected, but when the enemy shows up, you're the, fr- you're the front of the attack. You're the first point of attack. And then there were the poor. The poor lived out in little villages, but most of them found their way to the valley of Ben-Ganom, or the valley of the Hinnom, which is outside. It was the trash place, lower than the city. So if you were the poor, and you're living inside the trash valley, the hope that you have is found inside that city. Jesus is telling his disciples, you are the hope of the world. I'm going to do this stuff, but I'm going to leave. I'm going to die, I'm going to be resurrected, but I'm going to leave. 
It's your job now. When Jesus says that you are the light of the world in the first century, that means something to them too because their houses were a lot different than ours. In a modern culture, we kind of wall ourselves off from each other in our home. Each child has a bedroom. Maybe there's an upstairs and a downstairs. Us men have our man caves, maybe. We wall ourselves off from each other. Or shop. That's the other thing, too. Like, I'll go out to my shop. We wall ourselves off from each other, but we have different lighting systems in our house because we live in separate spaces. In the first century, they, A, did not have electricity, and B, they lived in a one-section house. So to properly light a room, they had to light a lamp, put it on as high of a thing as they could, and it would light the entire room. Jesus is saying that if you have bought in to becoming my disciple and following me, you are the light. You are that light. So what does that mean for us now? What does that mean for us currently? we got life action coming. We're excited about this. But what does that mean going outward? The question is, is where are you in this? Some of you have walked through the door and you read the Beatitudes and you're like, that's me. I am poor in spirit. God's favor is on you. Many of you walked in and you said, I'm mourning. I am in complete and total mourning. God's favor is for you. Maybe some of you are hungering and thirsting for righteousness. God's favor is for you. If God's favor is for you, then you are part of this. What you need to do is accept the rabbi and come follow Jesus because God's favor is for you. Maybe some of you walked in the door and you said, yeah, I've taken that step, but I haven't done anything yet. I've bought in. I believe Jesus is my way. Jesus is the salvation. I believe that. But I'm not good enough to serve. I'm not good enough to step forward. I'm not good enough to sit in the front row. I'm telling you right now, the qualifications are not that high. They're not. God will choose who he chooses. When Jesus makes the triumphal entry, he says, if you stay quiet, these stones will cry out. We all have stuff. So if it's you keeping you from coming forward and following Jesus, the qualifications aren't that high. All you have to do is say yes. Don't come here on a Sunday, please, and then just leave. Let's be part of actually doing something for our community and our world. If you're somebody who is an avid follower of Jesus, a resilient disciple, you've been through ups and downs, but you have been faithful to Jesus, and you're in the front row. Not literally. Sorry, Abe Abe will never sit here again. (laughs) AJ's already looking at me uncomfortably, I can tell. But if you're in the front row figuratively, don't be looking this direction, please. Turn around. This kingdom is for all of these people. Turn around. You are the salt of the earth. You are the city on the hill. And you 
are the light of the world. So as the praise team comes forward, and we think of what the next two weeks looks like, I love what Ms. Vaughn said about drawing the circle. As we draw our own circles, and we ask for revival to start in us, remember that after revival leaves, we have a job to do. We have, a community to inf- we have a community to affect. We were not called to sit on the sideline. We were called to make disciples. We're going to sing a song, and it's going to be led by Pro Presenter. And it's Jesus Paid It All. Jesus Paid It All. How much more does that mean for us? Lastly, have a prayer for our mothers as we, as we move forward. If you read the book of Genesis, you'll run into a story where um, Abraham and Sarah make a huge mistake. And they don't trust the story. And they end up having an issue where they have Hagar become impregnated with, with uh, Ishmael. And then they send her off. And in that moment when she's got her son and she's all alone, God shows up in her mess and her, and her calamity, and she actually gives him a name. She's the only person in the Hebrew Bible that gives God a name, and she says, you are the God that sees me. I will say this to all the mothers here who are doing their best. There is a God who sees you, and we see you too, and we appreciate you. So let me pray for you as we go throughout the week. Father God, I I thank you that you are the God who sees and that you are the God who sees all our mothers here. The ones who are doing their best to lead their children to you. To all the mothers who have lost a child, God, you're still the God who sees. And to the mothers who are, are struggling and who want to be mothers, you're still the God that sees. I ask that you would bless all our mothers as they go forth to do the work that sometimes is thankless. We love them, and we cherish them and the contributions that they give to our church and our community, to our families. We are stronger because of them. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.